All right, we are back. A another episode of political theory and um, other stuff. Mike and Paul here doing um, the racial contract by Charles W. Mills. We're in the uh, overview section, page thirty-three, bottom of at the first paragraph. Paul, do you want to start us off? I sure would. Thank you very much. All right. <clears throat> Uh, thus, where has no reputable <laughs> I didn't say I was going to start us off well. Okay. Uh, <laughs> thus, where has no reputable historian today would espouse the frankly biologistic bio theories of the past, which made Europeans, in both pre- and post-Darwinian accounts, inherently the most advanced race, has contrasted with backward, less evolved races elsewhere. The thesis of European specialness and exceptionalism is still presupposed. It is still assumed that rationalism and science, innovativeness and inventiveness, found their special home here, as against the intellectual stagnation and traditionalism of the rest of the world, so that Europe was therefore destined in advance to occupy the special position in global history it has. James Blout calls this theory, or super-theory, an umbrella covering many different versions, theological, cultural, biologistic, geographical, technological, etc., of Eurocentric diffusionism, according to which European progress is seen as natural and asymmetrically determinate of the fate of non-Europe. Similarly, Sandra Harding, in her anthology on the racial economy of science, cites the assumption that Europe functions autonomously from other parts of the world, that Europe is its own origin, final end, and agent, and that Europe and people of European descent in the Americas and elsewhere owe nothing to the rest of the world. That is a really, I mean, like, obviously we've talked about it before, but for some reason the way that was written kind of hit me that, like, all European success was based off the exploitation of everybody else. I, you know, um, anybody with yep. a, a modicum of historical knowledge knows that when Europe wasn't going out conquering and taking everything else, they weren't a powerhouse by any fucking means, you know? it's And they also... And it's not talked about a lot, but so much of the European culture comes from stealing the culture from these places that they went to, you know, like, uh, it's one of the sadder parts is that I, I feel like the final push of, and I'm going to say European, but it's all starts from Europe, but other countries are involved as well, even if maybe they got their start from Europeans, is that it's kind of like the final part of genocide that they get to steal your culture as well. Um, so I'm not saying anything too controversial it's like with the romans and the celtics like the fucking second they took over the celtics celtic garb was like the fashionable shit in rome like that's how you were a cool hipster in rome but only after they made sure there were no real celtic people left <laughs> just shit like that um unsurprisingly black and third world theorists have traditionally dissented from this notion of happy divine or natural european dispensation they have claimed quite to the contrary that there is a crucial causal connection between European advance and the unhappy fate of the rest of the world. One classic example of such scholarship from a half century ago was the Caribbean historian Eric Williams's Capitalism and Slavery, which argued that the profits from African slavery helped to make the Industrial Revolution possible, so that intern in internalist accounts were fundamentally mistaken. And in recent years, with decolonization, the rise of the new left in the United States, and the entry of more alternative voices into the academy, this challenge has deepened and broadened. There are variations in the author's positions, 
For example, Walter Rodney, Samir Amin, Andre Gunder Frank, Emmanuel Wallerstein. But the basic theme is that the exploitation of the empire, the bullion from the great gold and silver mines in Mexico and Peru, the profits from plantation slavery, the fortunes made by the colonial companies, the general social and economic stimulus provided by the opening up of the new world, was to a greater or lesser extent crucial in enabling and then consolidating the takeoff of what had previously been an economic backwater. It was far from the case that Europe was specially destined to assume economic hegemony, there were a number of centers in Asia and Africa of a comparable level of development which could potentially have evolved in the same way. But the European ascent closed off this development path for others because it forcibly inserted them into a colonial network whose exploitative relations and extractive mechanisms prevented autonomous growth. Which is what you were just talking about. Yeah. Overall, then, colonialism lies at the heart of the rise of Europe. The economic unit of analysis needs to be uh, European or Europe as a whole, since it is not always the case that the colonizing nations directly involved always benefited in the long term. Imperial Spain, for example, still feudal in character, suffered massive inflation from its bullion imports, but through trade and financial exchange, other others launched on the capitalist path such as holland such as holland profited internal nation national uh, rivalries continued of course but this common identity based on the transcontinental exploitation of non-european world uh, world would in many cases be politically crucial generating a sense of Europe as a cosmopolitan entity engaged in a common enterprise underwritten by race. As Victor Kernan uh, puts it, all countries within the European orbit benefited, however, as Adam Smith pointed out, from colonial contributions to a common stock of wealth. Bitterly, as they might wrangle over ownership of one territory or another. There was a sense in which all Europeans shared in a heightened sense of power engendered by the success of any of them, as well as in the pool of material wealth that the colonies produced. Today, correspondingly though, formal decolonization has taken place and in Africa and Asia, Black, brown, and yellow natives are in office, ruling independent nations. The global economy is essentially dominated by the former colonial powers, their offshoots, Euro-United States, Euro-Canada, and their international financial institutions, leading agencies, and corporations. As previously observed, the notable exception whose history confirms rather than challenges the rule, is Japan, which escaped colonialization and after the Meijan Restoration, I don't know, Meijan? Uh, Meiji. Meiji, okay. Uh, Meiji Restoration uh, successfully em embarked on its own industrialization. Thus, one could say that the world is essentially dominated by white capital. Global figures on income and property ownership are, of course, broken down nationally rather than racially. But if a transnational racial 
disaggregation were to be done, it would reveal that whites control a percentage of the world's wealth grossly disproportionate to their numbers. Since there is no reason to think that the chasm between first and third worlds, which largely coincides with the racial division, is going to be bridged, vi- Let's look up that word. In spite of, maybe? I don't know. Or because of? I don't know. See or consult used as an instruction in a text to refer the reader to a specified passage, book, author, etc. Kind of like via, you know, like through this abject failure of various United Nations plans. Yeah, or like look into that. Okay. Vide the abject failure of various United Nations plans from the developed decade of the 1960s onward. It seems uh, undeniable that for years to come, the planet will be white-dominated. With the collapse of communism and the defeat of third-world attempts to seek alternative paths, the West reigns supreme, as celebrated in a London Financial Times headline. The fall of the Soviet bloc has left the IMF and the G7 to rule the world and create a new imperial age. Holy shit. Economic structures have been set in place causal processes established whose outcome is to pump wealth from one side of the globe to another and which will continue to work largely independently of the ill will goodwill racist anti-racist feelings of uh, particular individuals this globally color-coded distribution of wealth and poverty has been deduced by the racial contract and in turn reinforces adherence to it in its signatories and beneficiaries um so um shit i don't even so basically he's just saying that like um that Europe and its uh its colonies or what used to be or like the white colonies like um Canada and uh the US have mm-hmm. profited from this system that with the fall of communism um they they will continue to profit from it and because of that even if you look at it in today's lens that yes there are asian and african um countries that are ruled by its own citizens if you were to look into the wealth distribution in those nations, it's still probably skewed very heavily to white Europeans owning most of the wealth in those areas via, you know, he doesn't go into detail, but I'm guessing via corporate domination. Well, and IMF loans and stuff, too. Exactly. They may be under the guise of self-leadership, but are still in, um, you know, a system that uh, exploits their economies in a, a very large way. Uh, the money is still going to white people. I think one of the things he was also trying to say. Totally, totally. So um, I'm going to do a random tangent that has nothing to do with what we were just talking about. I just forgot to talk about this when we first started, and I really wanted to tell you about it. So I'm, uh, you know, listening to uh, Five Th- A Debt, 5,000 Years, you know, by David Graeber. And yeah, RIP. And in that, he's talking about how we use the word society nowadays really to mean oftentimes nation. He was talking about like, um, he's like, well, like if an Armenian uh, sheep herder that was like under the Turkish rule a few hundred years ago, he didn't view himself as part of like Turkish society. Right. That's a good point. And I had never thought about that. But uh, he said that his grandmother told this joke or this parable from uh, she was from Poland. And she said that they would tell this story or this parable about a town on the edge between Poland and Russia. 
in the like early 1800s and Poland and Russia couldn't decide where the town was, whether it was in Poland or Russia. And so they send some, um, what are the guys called? I want to say navigators. The dudes that look at land with the... Uh, surveyors surveyors yeah so they send the surveyors out to see where they're at and they're on the hill and these uh and the town um elders trudge up the hill and they're like um hey have you guys figured it out are we part of poland or are we part of russia <laughs> and then and they're looking through and they're like okay okay hold on hold on hold on um all right let's do some notes here okay looks like you are 30 kilometers inside of uh poland and the elders are dancing and celebrating and singing and the surveyors are like what the fuck why do you guys care why are you so excited and they're like oh my gosh we are so thrilled that we no longer have to deal with russian winters <laughs> and i just thought that was so on point i never thought about it like that it just reasserts how culturally constructed um that sort of shit is yeah an arbitrary this yeah, fucking, yeah yeah and just destructive uh, but that doesn't demonstrate right. any the destruction. Yeah, it's just cute, funny. Where, moreover, okay, yeah. Moreover, it is not merely that Europe and the former white settler states are globally dominant, but that within them, uh, where there is significant non-white presence, indigenous peoples, descendants of important imported slaves, uh, voluntary non-white immigration, what you know, the extreme diversity of white nations that prove that they're not racist by the way <laughs> totally totally uh, uh whites continue to be to be privileged vis-a-vis non-whites the old structures of formal uh, de jure exclusion have largely been dismantled the old explicitly biologistic ideologies largely abandoned the racial contract, as will be discussed later, is continually being rewritten. But opportunities for non-whites, though they have been expanded, remain below those of whites. Claim is not, of course, that all whites are better off than all non-whites, but that as a statistical generalization, uh, the objective life chances of whites are significantly better. I'm just going to redo it's, that one. Yeah. Because that's really important. It's such a good point. It's such a good point. Yeah, Yeah. it's really important. The claim is not, the claim is not, of course, that all whites are better off than all non-whites, but that as a statistical generalization, the objective life chances of whites are significantly better. So just keep that in mind next time you say that you have, that you're poorer than your ethnic neighbors. Dear God, like that's not what anybody's ever fucking talking about in this uh, in this conversation. It is never yep. an individual, yep. anecdotal conversation. Yep, it is one built off of data points extrapolated yep. from societies all across the globe yep. for decades, and yep. uh, at least like real time for decades. Right. Well, and we've been recording them for a while, too. I, I mean, uh, you can what is great. Dude, that's another thing that's crazy about that fucking debt book. When I hear about like, I don't know, uh, like Assyrian um, uh, cuneiform tablets, I think yeah. that uh, I always thought like, oh, they have like seven of these or whatever. But uh, dude, fucking I guess uh, Keynes did a um, analysis of all of the cuneiform tablets that have to do with like grain and rice exchange or some shit, which is the majority of them, honestly. And it was, and he was like able to write thick books on it. And then that's just crazy to me that um that many data points from that long ago, you know? Yeah, 
they're just generally like we i guess what i mean is like the more focused of actually like acknowledging race and shit divide mm-hmm. within them mm-hmm. uh they were uh the data points have existed but as far as like how detailed those data points get okay right totally um as an example consider the united states a series of books has re- recently documented the decline of the integrationist hopes raised by the 1960s and the growing intransigence intransigence i don't know what that means i think i know what it means like I'm so glad I didn't say what I think it meant. Uh, <laughs> unwilling or refusing to change one's views. Okay. Okay. So that would be. Um, so so then like. Hold on, I gotta reread. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, the white people who just refuse to agree that they need to do more. They're like, we've already got this as far as it needs to get. You can't convince me. I need to do anything else than let them use our water fountains. Like you know that sort of shit. The growing intransigence and hostility of whites who think that they have done enough, despite the fact that the country continues to be massively segregated, median black family incomes have begun falling by comparison to white family incomes after some early closing of the gap. The so-called black underclass has basically been written off and reparations for slavery and post-emancipation discrimination have never been paid or indeed even seriously considered. The recent work on racial inequality by Melvin Oliver and Thomas Shapiro, not related to Ben, um, (laughs) suggests that wealth is more important than income in in determining the likelihood of future racial equalization since it has a cumulative effect that is passed down through intergenerational transfer affecting life chances and opportunities for one's children wait where does okay i'm gonna redo that one because i think that one's really important too yeah recent work on racial inequality by melvin oliver and thomas shapiro suggests that wealth is more important than income in determining the likelihood of future racial equalization, since it has a cumulative effect that is passed down through generational transfer, affecting life chances and opportunities for one's children. Whereas in 1988, black households earned 62 cents for every dollar earned by white households, the comparative differential with regard to wealth is much greater and arguably provides a more realistic narrative or sorry a more realistically negative picture of the pros- prospects for closing the racial gap in uh, it's a colon and then quotes whites possess whites possess nearly 12 times as much median net worth as blacks or versus $3,700. In an even starker contrast, perhaps, the average white household controls $6,999 in net financial assets, while the average black household retains no NFA nest egg whatsoever. Moreover, The analytic focus on wealth rather than income exposes how illusory the much-trumpeted rise of a black middle class, in quotes, is. Middle-class blacks, for example, earn 70 cents for every dollar earned by uh, middle-class whites, but they possess only 15 cents for every dollar of wealth held by uh, middle-class whites. 
this huge disparity in white and black wealth is not remotely contingent, accidental, fortuitous. It is the direct outcome of American state policy and the collusion with it of the white citizenry. In effect, materially, whites and blacks constitute two nations, the white nation being constituted by the American racial contract in a relationship of structured racial exploitation with the black and, of course, historically also the red nation. That whole thing is just so important to what is actually going on right now. You know, I, even Joe Rogan called fucking Shapiro out on this sort of shit. It's like you can't... Not Thomas. Just, not Thomas. Not Thomas. Not Thomas <laughs> Shapiro. No, no. They're only second cousins. No. Um, I'm just kidding. Sorry, Thomas. I would never, ever mean that. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it's just like they all want to live in this fantasy that we can just look at 2020 and disregard anything that happened before it and it's rogan does a pretty good job of being like well yeah but ben all these other families had generations to build up their wealth and they chose to emigrate whereas black families were ripped out of their homelands never allowed to accumulate wealth and then when they were freed weren't given any wealth they were basically just like all right enjoy having literally nothing so that you can learn the lesson of your mistake of trying to be free people even after that first generation, they probably had no chance to accumulate wealth. There was really an unbelievably slim chance of accumulating any sort of wealth until the 1960s. And so then that first generation that has any chance to accumulate any semblance of wealth is going to be on the hook to financially take care of the older generations now that didn't require or acquire any of that wealth. So not only not that anybody considers their parents a burden, that's not what I'm saying. But for white people, most of us get a little help from our parents at the end. When they pass, they leave us some money, a house, something of that nature. It was the complete opposite. Uh, and I, I'm not trying to frame it in a negative way or that these people were upset to help their or that anybody was upset to help their family. You know, there was just no shot at saving any money ever. So, yeah, I mean, the whole thing is just so fucked. And to pretend that it just has to do with how much money you make now. Um, or what the today's unemployment races or rate is for any ethnicity uh, is just literally like uh, it's literally just like a grain of sand on a beach of problems. Sorry, guys. Sometimes my dog gets really passionate about what we're talking about, and it's hard to calm her down. Right. Understandable, dude. It's um. I, I won't go out and say it's a great show. I think it's a great show. I don't know what other people's tastes are, but HBO has a newer show out called Lovecraft Country. And it is set in the 50s, and it just does such a good job of hitting home for me how terrifying it must have been to be black during that time period. Yep. There's so much just to show how societally fucked. You know, they're not allowed, no, black people aren't allowed anywhere. Um, if they go places, they're not allowed. People have no problem burning their cars, you know. Uh, there's one scene, though, that just fucking, the whole show is supposed to be scary. It's got monsters. It's got all kinds of stuff like that. By far, the scariest scene in the entire show is the four main characters are in a car, and they get pulled over driving through a town, and the sheriff lets them know, like, do you know what a sundown town is? And they're like, yeah, we do. And it's where, it's white towns back then, where if black people were caught in it after sundown, the police department would hang those people from public trees um and so the sheriff pulls him down and he's like you've got seven minutes until sundown and you're nine minutes from the county line and then he follows them the whole time so they can't speed out of the county and just that concept that because you were black in a country where 
technically it's not illegal or anything at that point at that at ben shapiro's promise point how terrifying it still was to fucking be black in america like not just not inconvenient not possibly you know you might not get as good of a school terrifying to the core and to realize that it hasn't changed that much that just two weeks ago jake brown was shot in the back seven fucking times for being black and walking towards his car and then two days later a white kid shoots people in the middle of the street and the cops don't even arrest him just that fear of the societal control being targeted at you specifically i can't even begin to comprehend yep do you want to finish her off here yeah uh yeah a collection of papers from panels organized in the 1980s by the national economic association the professional organization of black economists provides some insight into the mechanics and the magnitude of such exploitative transfers and denials of opportunity to accumulate material and human capital. It takes as its title, The Wealth of Races, an ironic tribute to Adam Smith's famous book, The Wealth of Nations, and analyzes the different varieties of, of discrimination to which blacks have been subjected. Slavery, employment discrimination, wage discrimination, promotion discrimination, white monopoly power discrimination against black capital, racial price discrimination in consumer goods, housing, services, insurance, etc. Many of these, by their very nature, are difficult to quantify. Moreover, there are costs in anguish and suffering that can never really be compensated. Nonetheless, those that do lend themselves to calculation offer some remarkable figures. Begin parentheses. The figures are unfortunately dated. Readers should multiply by a factor that takes 15 years of inflation into account. Uh, and if we're talking in today, add another, say, 20 years of inflation to that as well. If one were to do a calculation of the cumulative benefits, though compound interest, from labor market discrimination over the 40-year period from 1929 to 1969 and adjust her inflation, then in 1983 dollars, the figure would be over $1.6 trillion. An estimate for the total of diverted income from slavery, 1790 to 1860, compounded and transferred into 1983 dollars, would yield the sum of $2.1 trillion to 4.7 trillion dollars and if one were to try to work out the cumulative value with compound interest of unpaid slave labor before 1863 underpayment since 1863 and denial of opportunity to acquire land and natural resources available to white settlers then the total amount required to compensated blacks would take more than the entire wealth of the united states which i don't think is coincidental yep it's uh God fucking damn it. And then you've got assholes like Shapiro just talking about bootstraps. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Jesus Christ. And it's also frustrating, and I know this it's not like a cabal thing, but I just looked up that book, The Wealth of Races. I was like, oh, that'd be an interesting book to own. It's like, at least, I only checked Amazon, but it says they've got one copy left, and it's a hardcover that uh, it ranges in price from 70 to $100. Damn. Whereas if you, you try to buy the Wealth of Nations right. on Amazon, I'm sure it's like $12, you know? Well, there's probably free Audible versions of it. Right. Yeah, yeah, or whatever. Um, yeah, totally. Sorry. God, uh, but no, I mean, those numbers are, are just disgusting. And I just, it's so enraging that white people can, in this day and age, pretend that this is all because of white people. It's just like, no, all of your profit, all of your money, all of this came from exploiting other races. 
and then to this day you still shit on them and call them lazy or don't want them in your neighborhoods or i just i mean it's truly a testament to how kind most humans are um that there weren't just like mass slaughters of white people for real right after floyd dies there's this uh uh video i saw on um john oliver where this black woman is talking about the the riots and the looting and she's like you know these aren't our communities we we're not burning down our communities because we don't own anything yeah. and at the very end she's like you know y'all are so fortunate that all we want is equality rather than revenge yeah. i think is what she said yeah and it's so true you know it's so true and i think and i think that's the fear of a lot of white people deep down is like that they think, oh, they're going to try to treat us like we treated them. And it's still kind of like how white people, not all, but I know a lot of people um, who are generally, this is all anecdotal, all anecdotal, <laughs> but a lot of the middle aged white men I know are like that in their personal lives. If somebody does them wrong, they're going to destroy that fucking person. Yeah. They're going to, yep. you know, if you yep. fuck me over, I'm fucking you over 10 times more. And when I was younger and I would read about like, especially civil war stuff, I'd be like, why didn't they just murder him? And then it wasn't until I got older and more mature and kinder that I realized like lots of good, especially people who understand oppression, who have had their lives fucked, have no desire to do that to anybody else. They just want to fucking have their own lives. And that's just so fucking tragic. You know, not not their take on it, but that that just being kind is such a negative aspect in capitalism. Yeah, totally. So this gives an idea of the centrality of racial exploitation to the U.S. economy and the dimensions of the payoff for its white beneficiaries from one nation's racial contract. But this very centrality, these very dimensions render the topic taboo, virtually undiscussed in the debates on justice of most white political theory. Super important. If there is such a backlash against affirmative action, what would the response be to the demand for the interest on the unpaid 40 acres and a mule? These issues cannot be raised because they go to the heart of the real nature of the polity and its structuring by the racial contract. White moral theories debates on justice in the state must therefore inevitably have a somewhat farcical air. Amen. Since they ignore the central injustice on which the state rests. No wonder a hypothetical contractarianism that evades the actual circumstances of the polity's founding is preferred. Both globally and within particular nations, then, white people, Europeans, and their descendants continue to benefit from the racial contract, which creates a world in their cultural image, political states differentially favoring their interests, an economy structured around the racial exploitation of others, and a moral psychology, not just in whites, but sometimes in non-whites also, skewed consciously or unconsciously toward privileging them. Taking the status quo of differential racial entitlement has normatively legitimate and not to be investigated further. God, I wish I wish I could say that in the 25 years after this book was written, that we had grown as a society to be able to start talking about this shit, but not even close. Probably worse. We're probably worse off than when this book was written, honestly, from a societal dialogue point about these topics. No, possibly. And I, I, but I also think it's just because um, these topics have a little bit more exposure. I haven't read into this, but I would not be surprised if this book 
um, wasn't really on the radar of non-academics, right. you know? And so it's almost like there wasn't that pushback because the academics were just talking about it amongst themselves. And it's been over the last, whatever, 20 years or so, it's kind of slightly slipped out of the academy. And, right. and then you have that, that pushback. That's true. Yeah, good call. I just really want to point out where he says, uh, not just in whites, but sometimes in non-whites also. That's so key. Ibram X. Kendi talks about the idea that um, that racist ideas and racist systems are, are colorblind, and people that are black are just as likely to embrace these ideas subconsciously or unconsciously as white people are. Um, one of the things that weirded me out the most in that aspect, weirded out maybe isn't the best word, have you ever seen that Chris Rock documentary, Hair? No. So it just goes into kind of this concept of how much money black people spend to get white qualities, which, you know, I mean, like, that's that's being racist against your own shit, realistically. If you're like, I don't well, like our... Well, in society, it also I mean, feels... But it's a societal it fe- they need. They feel pressure. Yeah, it's exactly. It's a societal exactly. need. But a lot of the people who are interviewed in it and stuff aren't viewing it, or aren't consciously viewing it like that it's more like i want pretty hair i want lighter skin you know this is for my own beauty needs yep you know that i think is a good example of that racism being built in unconsciously yep whether or not you acknowledge it outward or even fully understand it that market is based off of selling products to ethnic minorities that will allow them to appear more traditionally white in society That is the end of uh, chapter one or part one, the overview. Next time we're on to uh, chapter two, details, which starts on page 41. We appreciate you all uh, coming and hanging out with us. Thank you. Have a great day.